In this month's Dhamma podcast, we present Chapter 11, One Truth, Vipassana, Science, and Spirituality, from the upcoming audiobook, Realizing Change, by Ian Hetherington. Chapter 11, One Truth, Vipassana, Science, and Spirituality. The day's sitting came to an end. I went out to the garden. There were already plenty of dewdrops on the grass. A sky full of stars was twinkling and sparkling. The Milky Way was clear in sight. Cassiopeia, Pleiades, Cygnus and other constellations were traced. I realised through the whirl of sensations I was feeling that my body was void and gaseous, just like this spacious sky where countless stars were sparkling and moving so rapidly. My body felt solid and tangible, but the fact was that it was gaseous and empty. It might be mine, and it might not. Who was this I? Suddenly it occurred to me that I'd always been so selfish and egotistical up until this moment. Tears rolled down my cheeks. I cried out loud, not for sorrow, but for inexplicable joy. At least at that moment, I was humble enough to thank everyone and everything. Lying down on a log bench, I looked up at the sky again. The whole universe was a vivid organic entity now. I could even sense it was revolving very slowly. The starry sky up there and the starry universe inside of me, as I glimpsed a short while ago in meditation, were beautifully resonating. I felt so assured and secure, happy and content. Yotaro Uta recalls this incident from his first 10-day course in 1992. An acupuncturist, he later translated The Art of Living, into his native Japanese. Vipassana is not a religion, yet the process of introspection, exploration of the truth inside ourselves and outside in the world, is certainly religious. The meditation practice helps us understand the purpose of life and how it should be lived. Above all, it provides us with a practical tool for attaining the highest goals of which we are capable. Vipassana is a universal technique, open to all, practiced by all, benefiting all, irrespective of religious or cultural background, nationality, gender or class. The Buddha, a real historical figure, discovered and taught Vipassana, compassionately distributing the teaching freely far and wide. The term Buddhist, never used by him, only came into existence some centuries later. The Buddha himself referred to the teaching simply as Dhamma, the timeless law of nature, the truth which anyone can realise for themselves. He repeatedly emphasised the personal nature of the quest for enlightenment and the work involved. The results will come from your own practice, he explained, not through dependence on a teacher, blind faith or establishing a sect. Over time, 
organized religions tend to degenerate into sectarianism, dividing people, even turning them against each other, rather than underlining their common humanity and uniting them. Dhamma, as taught by the Buddha, is always inclusive and never the monopoly of one group or sect. I've always been of the opinion there is more to life than what appears in most Western societies to be important. While needing basics to live, I've always doubted my own need or desire to compete. Despite many interests, I always felt unambitious in any conventional sense. I'd always felt more complete being creative for its own sake, enjoying deep conversations or simply being at one with nature in forests, mountains or by the sea. In terms of a career, I trained and qualified as a lawyer in 1992 but left disillusioned. Little did I suspect that my sense of dissatisfaction was an underlying truth of the Buddha's teaching. The 1980s had convinced me that I needed some sort of healing, some more profound spiritual depth in my life. Like many Westerners, though, it never really occurred to me to seek this in organised religion. My own parents are neither strongly for nor against, so in that sense I never railed against religion. It merely seemed to lack depth or sincerity for me. After a period of confusion and loss of direction, I managed to take the plunge in a new direction and began art classes in the hope of somehow harnessing the ability I felt I had in that area. This culminated in a further degree, but again I found myself with more questions than answers. Surprise, surprise, more unsatisfactoriness. Robert Hyder lives in UK with his wife, a co-meditator and daughter, and works as a printmaker, organic farmer and artist. I found the path I'd been waiting unknowingly for since I don't know when, he wrote a year after practising Vipassana. Applied Science Dhamma and science are frequently pitted against one another. Actually, they represent two complementary aspects of human activity. We are an inquisitive species, always wanting to know and understand ourselves and the world. Right from birth, a child tries to figure out the cause-effect relationship among various events around them. Pushing a switch lights a bulb. Putting ice in a glass of soft drink cools it. Science synthesizes all the knowledge that we have gained about the external world with the help of our senses. As the child grows into maturity and experiences life's ups and downs, he or she often begins to question, what is the point of all this? Being born, studying, earning, having children, raising a family, retirement, and finally dying? Why is there so much suffering caused by illness, old age, separation from loved ones, association with undesirables? They begin to consider the real cause of their suffering and the way out of it, and thus become wiser. Dhamma synthesizes all the wisdom gained by humanity. It reveals the laws relating to our inner world 
just as science deals with the laws pertaining to the outside world. For the harmonious development of individuals and society, proper integration of science and Dhamma is essential, yet they are often perceived as irreconcilable. Dhamma, for many people today, has become identified with sectarian religions, ritual, community conflicts, and a stubborn resistance to any logical scrutiny of beliefs. Science, meanwhile, is usually associated with thoroughgoing materialism, the view that matter is the only reality. Vipassana uses a scientific approach to probe the truth inside. The meditation technique enables anyone to experience the laws of nature, not just a select few. Every proposition is presented as a hypothesis to be accepted only on verification by experience and not on authority. Although spiritual experience is by definition personal, it can be shared and verified in the personal experience of others. Such propositions must also prove rational and logical to be acceptable. It has long been recognised that the ability to cap sense desires is an important human attainment. But if we are not simply to give way to the urge to express anger and passion, how do we avoid suppressing these emotions in the subconscious when we divert our attention? Vipassana offers a method for purifying the mind of its baser instincts. Step by step, we can learn to identify these mental defilements objectively and by detached observation within the mental-physical structure, we can eliminate them. Working with the natural breath and body sensations, the technique can be easily understood and the results immediately verified by personal experience. It is an applied science, a technology for inner development. No prior belief is necessary to undertake the meditation and like every technical skill, it can be accomplished by anyone through systematic practice. Historically, the rise of science encouraged the materialistic belief that all phenomena could be explained rationally on the basis of well-understood laws of nature. In the West, mind and matter were seen as separate entities, mind's perceived subjectivity making it the poor relation. Even today, any suggestion about transcending the intellect is often seen as unscientific. However, recent developments in science, such as the theory of relativity and quantum mechanics, are bringing about a profound change in our accepted view of nature. The truths of impermanence and egolessness in the universe, the interconnectedness of mind with matter, are being discovered in fields as diverse as physics, biology, psychology and neuroscience. The emerging worldview recognises the role of direct experience or insight alongside traditional approaches to understanding reality. Beyond apparent contradictions, the perspectives of Dhamma and science complement one another, vastly enhancing our understanding and showing us wise ways forward. Long before the discoveries of modern science, the Buddha realised by examining himself in deep meditation that the entire material structure 
is composed of minute subatomic particles, which arise and vanish trillions of times in the blink of an eye. Some years ago, an American scientist received the Nobel Prize in Physics. He had devised an instrument, a bubble chamber, capable of calculating how rapidly particles in the universe change. He found that in one second, a subatomic particle arises and vanishes 22 times after 10. The two scientists came to the same conclusion. But whereas the Buddha experienced the truth directly for himself, the physicist relied for information on his instrument and intellectual wisdom only. The Buddha attained liberation from all suffering through his research. Did the Nobel Prize winner likewise gain enlightenment? S.N. Goenka, edited story from a 10-day discourse. What is happiness? For all that science has achieved in the field of materialism, are the peoples of the world happy? They may find sensual pleasures off and on, but in their heart of hearts, they are not happy when they realise what has happened, what is happening, and what may happen next. Why? This is because, while man has mastery over matter, he is still lacking in mastery over his mind. Instead of using intelligence for the conquest of atomic energy in matter without, why not use it also for the conquest of atomic energy within? This will give us the peace within and will enable us to share it with all others. Siyaji Yubakin, Vipassana Teacher Universal Teaching Vipassana is a universal technique. It confronts the common human problem of suffering and addresses the common human need for consolation, relief from sorrow. Meditation courses have been organised in Christian churches and seminaries, a Muslim mosque, Hindu and Buddhist religious places. Thousands of followers of the various world religions and many of their leaders are taking Vipassana courses. Atheists and agnostics are also attracted. Why? The mental training we undertake practicing Vipassana, morality, concentration and purification of mind, is entirely non-denominational. The objects of meditation breath and body sensations, have no sectarian association. Religious conversion is not involved. One can remain within one's religion or tradition and still gain all the benefits of meditation. Confidence or faith is an invaluable support on the path, but faith needs to be properly founded on wholesome qualities in people, gods, religion, which inspire us to improve ourselves. No one can do that for us. We must understand that only we can do the work and experience the results now and in future. The common task is to become a better human being. Whatever our background, if we accept this responsibility, Vipassana will take us towards the goal. Most people in the West come from Christian backgrounds. 
For some, it is part of their upbringing and culture, which remains more or less buried, rejected even. Others, however, everyday folk as well as nuns, monks and priests, maintain an active faith. Vipassana helps us reconnect with our spiritual roots, and through the direct experience of truth in meditation, grow as individuals. Bill Vorhauer was engaged for much of his professional life as an educator and social worker in Hispanic communities within the United States. Now retired, he intends to spend more time sitting and serving at Vipassana centres and maybe constructing some straw bale buildings. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. H.D. Thoreau Is it weakness of intellect, birdie? I cried, or a rather tough worm in your little inside? Gilbert and Sullivan. At three in the morning of a sleepless night, when the brain begins to buzz like a bad fluorescent light, I used to wonder what all the fuss and feathers of the day were all about. Or if it had been a placid day, had I wasted it by not being in the thick of the daily battle to get something done in the bureaucracy? And anyway, was this or that more worthwhile, or was the whole thing a self-deception? The struggle to get one's point, sales quota or promotion, wasn't there anything better to draw breath for, let alone live or die for? Never mind the high drama. All I ever wanted was just a tad of conviction or a subjective reality, instead of always feeling poised precariously on a ball-bearing platform just the size of my footprint. You don't know what a poor opinion I have of myself and how little I deserve it, Gilbert and Sullivan. In the US, the minorities that buy into the rat race try to outdo what the mainstream white person achieves due to the lack of artificial barriers. His own group will accuse him of assimilationism and the others will not care at all, or if they do, it will be to make invidious comments. As a Mexican-American, I found myself lost in this morass in spite of the fact that I'd sought affiliation through a very active Pentecostal participation since I was 14. At 16, I converted my parents, and we all became Mennonites, Anabaptists. At 18, organised religion lost all appeal for me. Up until my 53rd year, I worked and prayed for some sense of certainty or satisfaction, because it appeared that the people that I knew seemed satisfied with the goals and rewards of ordinary life and pursued them avidly. Fishing, jet skiing, spectator sports, beer, bar hopping and all. I think I would have been a dedicated alcoholic if the hangovers weren't so vicious. So there it is in a nutshell. The gnawing worm in the mind. The feeling of alienation and no source of peace or satisfaction. In 1978, when I first learned about Vipassana, two major realisations changed the landscape of my mind. After so many years of uncertainty and confusion, I had finally found a subjective reality 
that required no faith or proof outside of myself. Upon careful repeated examination of all my hopes, desires and wants, it finally dawned on me that my conditioned desires were the root cause of my mental misery. In my ignorance, actively conditioned and manipulated by every element of society, I had sought comfort, assurance and security in things and the standard programme of family life. When this became a self-verified, incontrovertible conclusion, I felt that I had been released from prison and was breathing new air. Elated is too mild a word to express my newfound state of mind. The second part of my new subjective reality, and I urge an understanding of what the operative effects are of a subjective reality, was that I had believed an untruth. I now had the means to disabuse myself of the notion that I'd ever been in control of my mind. Through Vipassana, it had become abundantly clear that the usual state of anyone's mind is one of chaos. I was on one end of the rope, and the wild horse of my mind was on the other end, and I was daily being dragged through thorns, mud, muck and rocky ground, and my standard was how much or how little skin I had lost that day. It was as if I thought being dragged was the normal mode of transportation. It might be said that Vipassana held out the knowledge of saddles and horsemanship. There was the hope or faith that issues from no other alternative. There was also the perfect understanding and experience of many meditators to bolster my confidence that mental horsemanship was a skill like any other, and although it might be simple, it was neither quick nor easy after 53 years of running wild, but nevertheless possible and probable through sufficient practice. It's never too late unless you don't start. Father Desmond D'Souza a redemptionist retreat teacher for over a quarter century and ex-secretary to the Third World Protestant Churches in Singapore, likened attending a 10-day course to a second deeper training for his vocation. Vipassana represents a radical shift from a deductive, theoretical, prefabricated system to an inductive, experiential way of learning. No book, no Bible, no rosary, no mass, no prayer, no God, nothing. You go empty. And there you begin to find that the real book is yourself, your own body and mind. You discover that within yourself there are laws operating which are the same laws operating in the universe outside. So now I'm not starting anymore from a system of beliefs. I'm not starting from my belief in God. I'm starting from Jesus of Nazareth, a human being going through a similar process of purification towards an enlightenment that ultimately was transformed by God. Vipassana is the best process of acquired contemplation. We can come to the highest state of sensitivity to receive the gift of God's grace.
Father John Chang was at his first course in Taiwan before being assigned to work in Brazil. Vipassana serves as my daily spiritual practice. It provides me with the strength and power to respond to the demands of my ministry as a Catholic priest. It helps me to have a clear and open view about religious practices. It inspires me to have a better understanding of the teachings of Jesus and the books in the Bible. With the practical perspective of Vipassana, the words of Jesus recorded in the Bible make sense to me. The words become alive. It is no longer simply the authority of the Bible, but the authority that comes from sharing the same wisdom about life. It delights me to see that Buddha and Jesus are sharing the same wisdom in the art of living. Vipassana also helps me to have better control over my mind and sets me free more quickly from sad and undelightful moments. It helps my understanding of the human weakness of others and gives me more compassion towards the needy. Fundamentalism, conservatism, exclusiveness, narrow-mindedness, prejudice, all encountered within my religious circle, can be reviewed and reduced through Vipassana. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The power of Vipassana can help people to see the truth themselves. The very act of seeing will set them free from the bondage of ignorance and delusion. Vipassana creates light with which to see and catch the essentials of religion, reduces gaps and conflicts, and encourages the religiously minded to look for the common good and the improved welfare of the entire universe. In other words, it provides a new horizon and vision of life. Muslims are sometimes reticent to take up meditation because they fear it might be in conflict with their religious principles. However, a respected religious scholar recently commented in the Arab News that if meditation requires no particular ritual, then what is desirable and encouraged by Islam can be achieved through introspection. Many Muslims from different schools and communities have discovered in Vipassana a technique which enhances their lives as Muslims, while in no way requiring them to identify themselves with the practice of some other religion. Despite the sincere recommendation of a friend, Muhammad Arif Joya hesitated about taking a course. Oh, this is the religion of Buddhists, atheists. These Buddhists don't believe in soul and God. What can they teach? I am a Muslim. I cannot commit this crime. Overcoming these fears, he decided to join the course, Hyderabad, India, 1978, and made good progress. However, one night, while sleeping, he suddenly saw a ferocious demon which seized him by the neck and threatened him for coming to the meditation centre. Waking in a fright, Muhammad saw his roommates peacefully sleeping and realised that it was a nightmare, a play of the mind, impurities shaken by serious meditation being eradicated. I now understood. This is a conspiracy of the unconscious mind. I am not leaving without completing the course. He relaxed, smilingly 
returned to bed and eventually fell asleep. Next day, feeling calm and detached, Muhammad found a fresh perspective on his experience. I now understood the meaning of I take refuge in Buddha as refuge in one's own enlightenment, not the personality of Siddhartha Gautama. The meaning of I take refuge in Dhamma is that one has to be established in one's own true nature, not in any sectarian religion. The meaning of I take refuge in Sangha is to take refuge in those noble ones who have become well established in Dhamma, whatever their race, colour or nationality. From this sacred moment onwards, the word death, full of theories and tears, just flowed away like melted snow. Oh no, no being dies. Death is impossible. Everyone keeps on moving on the journey according to one's own actions. And the final destination of the journey is Nibbana. Now I understood what one's own religion is and what the religion of others is. Without purifying the mind by Vipassana and realising our own nature, life is lived in the religion of others. Living in one's own nature is the true Dhamma. Later, Muhammad wrote, I would like to tell all my young educated Muslims that they should really try Vipassana and see the results. It's a necessity today that people of all different walks of life unite. In fact, worldwide, Muslims are being attracted to Vipassana in growing numbers. Retreats have been held in several Gulf states, and the art of living has been approved and published in the Farsi language. After 15 years having studied, experienced and taught different methods of meditation, I came across the technique taught by Mr. Goenka and found it very effective. I was a yoga teacher for many years and have trained many students. I've also written a book on the subject of yoga and meditation. But with Vipassana, as Mr. Goenka teaches it, I completed the last of my experiments. As an Iranian, familiar with the profound teachings of Eastern mysticism, I have spent my life aspiring beyond materialism, and I have witnessed that this impermanent world is a shadow to the ultimate truth. I found in Mr. Goenka's words a deep mutual understanding. I believed the Buddha's teaching and appreciated through experience the effectiveness of this method of meditation. Dr. Ahmed Nurbakhsh is a university teacher in Tehran, Iran. Throughout the Jewish diaspora, many are enthusiastically practicing Vipassana, particularly in Israel, where courses are regularly given and usually oversubscribed. Paul Glantz a 33-year-old Jewish rabbi, attended a Vipassana course in Sussex, England, during one holiday and wrote about it for his synagogue bulletin. I did think to myself on more than one occasion, why am I here? But it was a pleasure not to have to talk or even acknowledge anyone else. I often wanted to suddenly burst into song in the dining room 
but I kept to the rules and did not say any other rituals, prayers, or even chat to God, because a deal is a deal. The idea is that the meditation and this style of living cleanses one of all the tensions which we store in our bodies. Every evening there was a video about the theory behind the technique, and in this it was explained that cravings and aversions are the roots of all our problems, that we want things to happen, and we want to avoid other things happening. The meditation is meant to retrain the mind not to react to either our cravings or aversions. It was fascinating for me to consider the Jewish idea of Yetzer Hara, the bad inclination, which is so similar to this. The early rabbis, according to the Mishnah, would meditate for hours before they prayed. We do not know what technique they used, but for me this meditation technique seems very applicable. The retreat gave me a splendid opportunity to start to cleanse myself physically and emotionally before Yom Kippur. I would even consider doing it again next year. India is renowned for spirituality, with its wealth of gods, religious practices and meditation techniques. Vipassana originated here and has revived rapidly across the country in recent years. However, the hold of tradition remains strong, particularly among older generations, and sometimes it takes some special impetus to propel individuals towards a fresh perspective and personal change. 1984 was a particularly difficult year for all sensitive people in India. Operation Blue Star in the Punjab resulted in massive bloodshed at a much-revered Sikh temple. The Prime Minister, Mrs Gandhi, was assassinated, which was followed by terrible riots across the north of the country. Then, as if that wasn't sorrow enough for the country, the industrial disaster at the chemical plant in Bhopal killed and injured thousands. For P.L. Dar, a university teacher at the Institute of Technology, Delhi, all these events were overshadowed by the unexpected illness and death of his eldest son. From college days, Dar showed a spiritual inclination. He began regular study of the Hindu classics, such as the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads and the Vedas. He tried various kinds of meditation, mostly through instructions given in books. For a period, he became very close to a teacher whose explanations of the scriptures were particularly inspiring. At an intellectual level, Dar could understand his son's passing as part of some divine play and accept it with composure. However, as the months went by, the veneer of equanimity began to wear thin. He felt a strange uneasiness deep inside and found it difficult even to keep up his normal work routine. Perhaps it was true as he'd heard said, that traditional spiritual practices such as chanting, devotional prayers and thought observation were unable to penetrate into the deeper recesses of the mind. After all, there was no reason to be upset, and yet he found himself in turmoil. Where's the need, 
he'd replied some months before to a friend's invitation to try a Vipassana retreat. Now the need had made itself known. The first course was a very difficult experience, not because of long hours of sitting or enforcement of silence. It was the evening discourses that were very difficult to tolerate. These discourses challenged my cherished beliefs and seemed to be making snide and derogatory comments about some of the most revered saints of the past. I confronted Goenkaji, who was himself conducting the course, with my objections. Not feeling satisfied with his response and with the discourses becoming more and more strident, I even decided to leave the course after the third day. Goenkaji responded very affectionately. You're a scientist. Why not complete the experiment before coming to conclusions? You need not agree to all that is said in the discourse. Just practice what is being advised, and then after ten days, draw your own conclusions. And thus, when he refused to grant permission to go, I said to myself, Why not defer judgment and try to experiment sincerely for the rest of the days? At the end of the course, the effect was evident. I felt so light and happy as I'd never felt in my life. By the time I was 40, I was a very successful doctor with social status, prestige, a fairly moneyed person, having a hospital and house of my own, as well as a loving wife and children. Yet, Something was missing from my life. The right brain remained unfulfilled. Drawing, painting and musical talent, which I had nurtured as a younger man, now remained firmly in the background, while career and the ambition to succeed, all the left brain achievements, kept getting priority. Inwardly, contentment, happiness, patience, silence, peace and joy were almost unknown in my daily life. I was instead a very impatient, dominant, irritable person whose persistent anger spilled over from my professional into my personal life. Around this time, I came into contact with Osho Rajneesh, who advised that to find real happiness and solid values, I would have to look within. A new ambition now seized me, the attainment of enlightenment. I was initiated in sannyas, wearing red robes and beads. I changed my name and went headlong into various forms of meditation, including a type of vipassana. For several years I practiced in my own way without anyone to guide me, using the teachings of Krishnamurti and others for inspiration. Then by chance I stumbled on a book explaining the technique of vipassana, as taught by a Sengoenka, and realized that what I had been doing was very different. Joining a 10-day course, I immediately understood the significance of body sensations in the meditation practice. As a physician treating body and mind for 42 long years, I knew that patient symptoms were always expressed in terms of body feelings, yet I had never taken the trouble to observe these same sensations in myself. Suddenly, I saw myself revealed always wanting to retain the sensations I loved and be rid of those I hated. 
My whole existence was governed by sensation. But now at last, a way to inner contentment was beckoning, and the key was equanimity. Dr. H. N. Fadness is a holistic health counsellor in Pune, India. All members of his extended family practice Vipassana. The teachings of the Buddha contain deep inspiration and guidance on how we should conduct ourselves. But devotion towards the Buddha and reading scriptures alone will not bring liberation. His advice was unequivocal, meditate and progress on the path. When living in Rangoon, Burma, I never realised how fortunate I was to be born into a religious family. As in most traditional Buddhist families, performing good deeds such as giving donations and ethical living comes naturally and is part and parcel of our lives. I've also enjoyed the special privileges of being a male Buddhist. I became a novice several times during my teens and was ordained as a monk after age 20 on several occasions. I had the opportunity to practice samatha, concentration, and vipassana, insight meditation, using different methods at various monasteries and meditation centres. However, I never had the chance to meditate at Sayajiyubakin Centre, although it was very close to my wife's home. On immigrating to the United States, and settling down in Southern California. My wife, my younger son and I all had a wonderful experience attending the 10-day course at the nearby centre. Although assistant teachers led the course, I felt as if Goenkaji himself was conducting it. I was able to appreciate the effectiveness of the use of audio and video teaching materials. I've been to several Vipassana meditation courses in Burma conducted by famous monk teachers. Most centres there are open throughout the year, but they do not conduct a specified course, and the teachers themselves may not be available for guidance. At the end of our retreat, I felt very grateful to Goenkaji and to Ubakin for their wisdom, foresight, and hard work in successfully establishing permanent Vipassana meditation centres around the world. Although I missed the golden opportunity, of participating in Vipassana courses by Sayaji Yubakin himself while residing in Rangoon for 40 years, I finally was able to enjoy the fruits of his labours by completing the course at the California Centre for the first time. For me, it had been so near and yet so far. Utin Tun sat his first course at Dhamma Mahavana California Vipassana Center in 1996. He and his family in USA and abroad continue to meditate in this tradition and stay in touch with their monk teachers in Myanmar. Angraj Chaudhuri is a former professor of Pali, the ancient language of India in which the Buddha's teachings are preserved. I had not actually realised before I started practising Vipassana how fickle my mind is. I'd heard about it right enough, but I myself had little real understanding. 
I could speak about its nature glibly to my students when explaining the scriptures, but it was only with the experience of Vipassana that I could see just how the mind moves at breakneck speed from one object to another, multiplying our reactions. Unfortunately, I could learn to control it. Vipassana has enabled me to understand the Pali text better, but most importantly, it has helped me grapple more successfully with the storms and volcanoes that lie dormant in myself. The deeper meanings of these verses from the Dhammapada have now become crystal clear. The well-directed mind, indeed, can do greater good than even one's mother, father and relatives can. The ill-directed mind, on the other hand, can do greater harm than an enemy does to an enemy and a hater does to one who hates him. Reconciling Different Views Elevating shared spiritual values over superficial differences, the practice of Vipassana points away towards genuine understanding and reconciliation within and between diverse faiths and traditions. The following is an excerpt from a special address titled Buddha, the Super Scientist of Peace, given by S.N. Goenka to the United Nations in New York in May 2002. This is the bold declaration of a supreme scientist. He says, I have experienced this law of nature, the law of dependent origination within myself, and having experienced and understood it, I declare it, teach it, clarify it, establish it, and show it to others. Only after having seen it for myself, I declare it. Just as whether there is a Newton or no Newton, the law of gravity remains true. Newton discovered it and explained it to the world. Similarly, Galileo or no Galileo, the fact that the earth revolves around the sun remains true. The feeling of sensation is the crucial junction from where one can take two paths going in opposite directions. If one keeps on reacting blindly to pleasant and unpleasant sensations, one multiplies one's misery. If one learns to maintain equanimity in the face of pleasant and unpleasant sensations, one starts changing the habit pattern at the deepest level and starts coming out of misery. The sensations are the root. As long as one neglects the root, the poisonous tree will grow again even if the trunk is cut. The Buddha said, Just as a tree with roots intact and secure, though cut down, sprouts again, even so, while latent craving is not rooted out, misery springs up again and again. Thus, this super-scientist discovered that to become fully liberated from mental defilements, one has to work at the root of the mind. Each individual must cut asunder the roots of craving. For society to change for the better, the individual has to change. When the entire forest is withered, each tree has to be nurtured, its roots cleared of disease, and then watered. 
then the entire forest will bloom again. Similarly, for the betterment of society, each individual has to improve. For society to become peaceful, each individual has to become peaceful. The individual is the key. Similarly, for the world to become peaceful, each country or society has to become peaceful. Here I would again like to quote a very important exhortation from the Buddha to the Vajian Republic of Lichavis. The Buddha gave the following practical instructions which would make the Lichavis unassailable. As long as they maintain their unity and meet regularly, they will remain invincible. As long as they meet together in unity, rise in unity and perform their duties in unity, they will remain invincible. As long as they do not transgress their ancient principles of good governance and their system of justice, they will remain invincible. As long as they revere, respect, venerate and honour their elders and pay regard to their words, they will remain invincible. As long as they protect their women and children, they will remain invincible. As long as they venerate the objects of worship inside and outside their republic and maintain monetary support for them, they will remain invincible. There were many sects in those days too, with their own temples and places of worship. Wisdom lies in keeping all people happy and satisfied. They should not be subjected to harassment, which compels them to become enemies of the state. Their places of worship should receive adequate protection, as long as the rulers provide protection and support to saintly people, they will remain invincible. This wise counsel by the Buddha is also applicable today to maintain peace and harmony in the world. We cannot ignore issues related to religion if we are to be successful in bringing peace to the world. It is the duty of every government to protect its people from external attacks, to do everything possible to make its people and territory secure. While this is done, it must be borne in mind that such measures give only short-term benefits. Goodwill and compassion alone can remove the hatred that lies at the root of all such acts performed by anyone belonging to any sect. In India, the United States and other countries where Vipassana courses are held in prisons, we already see how people change. The roots of terrorism lie in the minds of terrorists. We have seen how some hardened violent criminals have been transformed in our prison courses. Anger, fear, vengefulness and hatred start dissolving, creating a peaceful and compassionate mind. We first ask some members of the prison staff to learn Vipassana and only then give courses for the inmates. This gives wonderful results. In the Buddha's teaching, we will find a bridge that can connect various sects. The three fundamental divisions of the Buddha's teachings, morality, concentration of mind and purification of mind, are the essence of every religion and spiritual path. Sila, Samadhi, Panya are the common denominators of all religions. There can be no conflict over these three basic factors necessary for living a beneficial life. 
The whole emphasis of the Buddha's teaching is on the practice of these three in order to apply Dhamma in real life. This is the inner core of every religion. Instead of giving importance to this core, we keep on quarrelling about the outer shell, which may be different in different religions. History has proved that whenever the universal non-sectarian teaching of the Buddha has gone to any place or community, it has never clashed with the traditional culture. Instead, like sugar dissolving in milk, the teachings have been gently assimilated to sweeten and enhance the society. We all know how much the sweetness of peace and tranquility is needed in the bitter world today. May the teaching of the Enlightened One bring peace and happiness to more and more individuals, thus making more and more societies around the world peaceful and happy. Find this and many more podcasts at Pariyadi, a non-profit publisher who offers written, audio, and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information, please go to www.pariyatti.org. That's pariyati.org. For more information about Vipassana meditation, please visit www.dhamma.org. That's dhamma.org.